All right, we're back in the green room, and we're talking about everyone's favorite COVID baking tips. Wait, okay, no, no, no. <laughs> so, all right, well, the quick intros. Um, we're gonna introduce. We're going reverse order. We'll do uh, Paul, Brent, James, Whitney, and then of course uh, we'll start the show. So, Paul, Brent, where are you guys calling from? Brent, where are you calling from? And what are we talking about today? I'm calling from. Uh, is this really a call? Or am I video casting from? Uh, <laughs> video Stock- casting, I think. Stockbridge, Georgia. I'm talking about whatever everybody else on this show is talking about. That's what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> oh, my. All right, Paul. <laughs> uh, well, I'm Paul Greenberg. I'm from Manassas, Virginia, and plus one to Brent. So somebody better oh have We really don't have an agenda somebody for this really call, really. <laughs> All right, James. So I'm James. I'm calling in from Palo Alto, California, and I'm going to be talking about automating decisions because, as we noted earlier, that's what I always talk about. <laughs> All right. We'll be, do- we'll be delving into this book, which you must read, especially given what we're doing. And Whitney. I am calling in from Lexington, Virginia, and we are going to be talking mostly about personal disruption as cataloged in the exploits of all the embarrassing things that happened to me personally in my newsletters. Wow. If you get the newsletter, it is darn good. It is hilarious <laughs> as hell. All right, we're going to L. Thanks for producing. Where's, where's home? You say hi. <laughs> hi, uh, Denver, Colorado. So very cool. And then, of course, my awesome co host, co founder, Vala. Hi, everyone. Vala Dalligan from Boston. Thank you for being here. All right, so we're going to go live and L. Do the count. All right, three, two, one. Hello and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar and I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. Uh, We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, <laughs> my favorite book. Uh, he's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet. I often see him on Yahoo Finance, Fox Business, CNN. He's everywhere. And in my humble opinion, he's one of the best futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host and co-founder of Disrupt TV. But more importantly, he's the one everyone's following on Twitter. CIOs, CEOs, CMOs, all trust his advice, and it's all uplifting on Twitter. Nothing nasty, everything powerful, everything uplifting. And more importantly, you can also catch him on business TV, keynotes everywhere. And of course, if you want to get his advice, follow him on ZDNet. He puts together the summaries of these shows every week. But It's not about us. It's really about our awesome guests every week. And we have one of our favorite guests. Who do we have? The one that helped us kick it off. And and, okay, so I want to expand on that because this is episode 201. In four years, Ray and I have interviewed 616 guests. But our first guest, the guest that helped launch Disrupt TV is our next guest. And uh, Whitney Johnson was our number one guest. And by the way, we had so many discussions for weeks who we wanted as our first guest. So uh, first ballot Hall of Fame inductee to Disrupt TV is our next guest. Whitney Johnson is CEO and founder of consultancy firm WLJ Advisors and is one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world as named by Thinkers 50 uh, as an expert on helping high growth organizations develop high growth individuals. Whitney is an award-winning author 
disrupt yourself, build an A-team. And I was looking for their dream do, and it's somewhere in my house. So I apologize, but uh, you know we have uh, amazing books behind me. Uh, uh, World-class keynote speaker, frequent lecturer at Harvard Business School's corporate learning, and advisor to C-suite executives. I can tell you a number of times I've asked Whitney for career advice myself. Amazing. Uh, Whitney has over 1.8 million followers on LinkedIn, where she was selected the top voice uh, in her course, The Fundamentals of Entrepreneurship, which has been viewed for more than uh, more than one million times. Last year, uh, Whitney was ranked by Thinkers 50 as one of the eight finalists in the leadership category and placed number three on the global gurus list of top 30 organizational culture professionals. She was ranked number one talent coach by Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. She's a must follow on Twitter. Every day you see amazing content on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. Uh, welcome back, Whitney, to Disrupt. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. I, I, I didn't realize I was your very, very first guest. So that's super first fun things. to celebrate with you and all the success the two of you have had in this show over the last four years. Congratulations. Thank you so much. No, hey, no, we thank you very much. And I remember like I was sitting in a conference room with you on the fourth floor of some museum uh, for the Atlantic. That's how we met. Uh, it's looking all the way back then. And we were talking yeah. about all these different things you were doing. And, you know, it, it's amazing, right? I get your newsletter. I see it every week. Once in a while, I'll, I'll reply back. People read these things. You know, uh, trust me, people actually do read these things. And they come in. And so there's one element you talked about, talking about bumps and boundaries. And I want to jump, jump right in there because okay. it was really insightful. Because I think people were hitting those hitting all those things right yep. now, especially working from home and especially given the way we're interacting. And let's jump in there and talk about that. Yeah, so um, the, the introduction to this, this idea is that a few, actually two weeks ago, I'd gone out to my porch. Um, it was a Sunday morning. We had this beautiful tomato plant on our porch and all of the tomatoes had been eaten. And I was so upset. I'm like, who ate the tomatoes? And a critter, of course, ate their tomatoes. And I was really like initially offended somehow that this critter had eaten our tomatoes. They had crossed the boundary, they had crossed the line. And then as I started to reflect on it, because animals oftentimes can be very much a zoological mirror for us, I thought, you know, I thought that this deer, it turned out it was a deer, had crossed a boundary, but had it really crossed a boundary? Because, I mean, the deer was had an objective. The deer needed to eat. The deer needed to feed its young. It had this sustenance objective. And had it really crossed a boundary or was it just playing within its own boundaries? And it really got me thinking. Um, when we were kids, we loved bumper cars and we would bump up against each other. And we were really clear what the boundaries were. But now, as adults, we're not so clear. They're oftentimes invisible. And so as we are all going about our work, um, we're all basically going after our sustenance objectives and occasionally bumping into each other. And some of the epiphanies that I had around this is number one is if we don't know where our boundaries are, because we don't typically know where they are until they've been crossed. But if we don't know where they are, how is anybody else going to know where they are? Um, but then once they've been crossed, it's very easy to turn them into not a person, but just that person that offended me. So now all of a sudden, we've not only got a cross boundary, but we've got some sort of enmity or animosity between us. And then the other insight, and, and Ray, I didn't actually write this in this new in the newsletter, but I think this is for me 
perhaps the most important aha, which is, is that if we aren't very good at knowing where our own boundaries are and allowing people to cross them, then is it possible that we are also crossing other people's boundaries unwittingly? So lots of great insight came from this experience of the deer that the tomato poaching deer on the Johnson's front porch. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, the book Disrupt Yourself, which, you know, I wish I read this book uh, earlier in my career uh, because by, re- you know, reading the book, I realized all the blind spots I had and the, and the courage and, and the fact that, you know, it, it, when you are truly disrupting uh, and you've always said it's not companies that disrupt, it's people that disrupt, you will have butterflies in your stomach. It is an uncomfortable feeling. And prior to the pandemic, I would spend a third of my time traveling. Uh, speaking at at events. So come come late February, early March, uh, myself and 52,000 people at Salesforce get a note from our legal counsel that says no more travel. So I'm thinking, okay, I I just had to shut off the faucet uh, for a third of what I do, uh, speaking and traveling. So how do I I disrupt uh, my my workday and and the way I think? And and I have a tough time writing. Writing for me is like root canal experience. It really is. I, you know, you need you need you need you need clarity of thought. You need a quiet mind, and I just struggle with all of that. Now, but I realized I realized that I needed to really commit to writing. Now, yesterday I published my 80th article since March. Uh, uh, 78 articles wow. on ZDNet and two outside of ZDNet. So, I am struggling. Talk about intentional struggle. I am totally disrupting myself in ways I've never done before. How have you uh, experienced personal disruption? And then advice you're giving to the C-suite that you advise yeah. in terms of coping with a health crisis, an economic crisis, a race crisis. I mean, there's so much going on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all struggling in some capacity, some more than others, but we're all struggling. Yeah. Mm. Such a great, great question and observation, Vala. So I think that the very first thing that I would say is that the only way that we can actually manage through disruption, I would argue, certainly thrive through disruption is if we're willing to disrupt ourselves. And so one of the reasons that that happens is that when disruption is happening, there's this sense of I'm drowning in this disruption. And you can definitely be in this place where you're sort of caught in the swell, rocking back and forth. But what you really want to do is to be able to surf that wave of disruption. disruption. And the way that you do that is by disrupting yourself, by asking yourself, what can I do differently in this situation right now? This This isn't a situation that's going to crush me. This is an opportunity that will allow me to reset my life. And if you think about it, Vala, okay, no travel. Now you are going to come out of this crisis and it's not an insignificant thing. You're going to be a significantly better writer. You will have found your voice in a way that you didn't think you even knew that you had six months ago. And so you are, and I think many, many people throughout the world are using this reset, using this being grounded of being at home to really evaluate our routines, um, put ourselves um, into some projects that we've been um very carefully and studiously avoiding and even improving some of our relationships with our families. And so the thing that I'm doing as I'm advising the the CEOs that I work with is to really focus on, okay, 
everyone is watching you. As Alan Mulally says, when you're in a leadership position, your face isn't yours anymore, so make sure you smile. But everyone's watching you. If you're willing to disrupt yourself, then you will give permission and you will give the leadership and the modeling that everyone in your organization needs to have the courage to disrupt themselves. You know, in your newsletters, you did talk about something that I think I do to myself. And I was laughing when I read it. And it's about <laughs> lists. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, you make these lists, you know, you crush it, you think you're yeah. all done. And then what do you do? You add more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and I just keep doing that, right? Like, I, I don't think my list, I have this thing that's on my calendar that just says housekeeping. Right. It's just like random stuff that just needs to get done and it never gets completed because the list is ongoing. It doesn't end. And right. so right. you had something very insightful to say about that. Um, I, I hopefully it gave you enough context to set you up there. Yeah, you did. So um, this is three or four weeks ago. And I think this is something that is happening the world over is that because we're at home, you know, many of us aren't traveling. We think I have so much time. I have so much energy. And it was a Friday afternoon, not unlike today. And I was just drained. I was depleted. I had nothing left in the tank. Wow. And fortunately for me, I had this major allergy attack the next day because I was out mowing the lawn. And I think it was my body saying, would you please slow down, like slow down now. And I realized that one of the challenges that I was having is that every single day I would get up and I would make lists. And I think lists are very important. They give us routine. They help us find that calm amidst the chaos that we're in. Um, but the challenge was, and you started to allude to this, Ray, is that I'll have a day and it gets to be one o'clock in the afternoon. And I created my list. I have my 10 things to do. And then I do this thing where I start sabotaging myself. So instead of saying, okay, we're going to declare victory today, Whitney, you got through your list. I'm like, no, let's add. Add 10 more things to the list so that by the time the day's over, I'm depleted yet again. And so one of the commitments that I've made is it's okay to be done. If you've made your list and you had 10 things on that list, just like you wouldn't travel across, you know, country and travel for 15 hours and, you know, 12 hours and then add another five hours, then in your day, get your 10 things done, mark it off the list, and then declare victory. And that will, I think, it already is, is helping me reduce burnout. So, <laughs> so you're so. like, declare victory. Yeah. I forget to celebrate success. I don't know about you. Yeah. Like I always do. I'm just like, oh, cool. Let's move on. Let's go. And it's okay. Like, so declare know. victory again. Is it just me? I'm having a difficult time picturing a Thinker's 50 world-renowned uh, business and disruption uh, theorist mowing a lawn. <laughs> I just, I, so I, I imagine you in like a regal library just writing on an old school typewriter, you know, thinking, thinking. So. If that was the requirement, they would have taken me. I, I think Figure 50 just thinks I'm a nuisance. So they're, they're, really they're like, who is this guy? He actually does mow a lawn, but he's not as good as Whitney in mowing a lawn. I don't know. I, I, I really want a photo of you on a big tractor mowing a lawn. I want to see you on a John Deere. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is a John Deere, by the way. Oh, wow. That's awesome. There you go. The it's photo is out there, Vala. It you is have out there. Raised, <laughs> you have just raised your street cred by, by, by a lot in our audience. Uh, okay, speaking of, okay, so, so, so uh, you know, we talked about disruption in this right. seismic event that we've all experienced this year with, with, with the pandemic. When you wrote the book, Building an A-Team, I'm right. not sure if you thought about it 
a distributed digital only construct. I mean, yeah. you know, it, 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 would have been, it would have been amazing if you had thought about that. But, but you know, none of us really ever imagined that we'd be looking inside each other's homes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm talking to CEOs almost daily and I'm seeing inside their homes, which to me is really just shocking. Um, and, and, and it's become the norm. I, I believe even, in, you know, when we help we get back to the healthy uh, business travel may be minimized because yeah. we'll be comfortable doing this. What type, so when you were thinking about the skills that's important to building a high-performing team, mm -hmm. are, they, are, are there certain skills that are bumped higher in your list of must-have skills when you're thinking that, because we had a venture capitalist who's a 40-year VC who said, I, don't, I have a tough time investing in startups because I used to use my senses in person, read the room, contextual intelligence for me being in the room I don't have that now with digital. So my sense of trust and intimacy is, 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 is hard for me to, 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 to assess. So yeah. what are your thoughts about how do you build a team now? Yeah, oh, it's such a great question. So I think, you know, one observation that I, I had, as you said, that is it has been interesting of like observing people in their homes. And you might have seen earlier, like a cat go across the back or, you know, children run in, which is, is always entertaining. Um, but I think that, you know, we we have this S curve of learning framework, this idea of everyone's on an S curve, and we still very much see that the importance of hiring people for potential. The thing that I think is, and I don't know that this is different, but I think it's more pronounced now, is that because it is all entirely distributed and you're not able to be in with each other in a physical space. And our team has been distributed all along, so we're not feeling it quite in the same way. Um, but I have noticed um, that it is very important in how people interact with each other. I mean, it's always been true, but even more so. There has to be this sense of, okay, people have the skills, or at least they have enough skills. So we were hiring for potential so they can move up that S-curve. But how are people interacting with each other? And you see so much on Slack. Like Slack is this great, mm -hmm. you know, you watch and you observe. Are people saying, hey, how can I help? What can I do to help you get that done? If something doesn't get done, is there the sense of blame of like, you didn't make it possible for me? And so one of the things I think is happening because you've got a distributed team, there's not necessarily the physical conversations. You have this, this record in Slack or an email of the tone that people are using with each other. And so that is, I think in some ways, it's a quicker indicator of if someone's going to work on your team or not by how they're interacting with each other and how helpful they are just to get the job done. And so um, I would say those soft skills are more important than ever. And especially because in general, people are more mentally depleted. They've got that cognitive bandwidth depletion. And so are people able to be polite and courteous and work together? And that has taken on an even greater importance in certainly on, on my team. That's terrific. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing like a, some massive changes here, some people making shifts. Now, the normal question like everyone's going to be asking you is, have you disrupted yourself in the middle of the pandemic? And then I got yeah. this comment from someone else. Did you ever write a fiction book about B-School and anything like that? Or is that someone else? No, it's someone else. It's not me. Oh, that else. Okay, fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> Would you disrupt yourself and go straight into yeah. consumer world and do something exactly. else? Yeah. So, so. um. So it's interesting, lots of new um, you know, learning curves, like Vala said, not traveling, which has been really fun. But some things that I have done is 
I number one, I've started doing yoga, which has been fantastic. Oh, wow. so I was running, started yoga. I'm playing the piano for at least five minutes every day because I'm trying to get back into the habit of playing the piano. So that's been a disruption. Um, I, I think two kind of bigger ones and one is kind of embarrassing. I probably need to talk about it on a newsletter because then I can embarrass myself some more. Um, but is that <laughs> I've gotten better of when I get on a call with my team is to ask how you're doing and give them time to share with me what's happening in their life. I'm very task oriented. And so it's so easy for me to be like, okay, what do we got? What, what do we got on the plate today? What do we need to get done? And so this has been, I think, a way that I've started to disrupt myself. And then the last thing I'd say that's really, really big, and this isn't the racial, this isn't the, the COVID pandemic, but the racial pandemic is that I've really had this experience of becoming much more aware and working on having it racial equality for me, not just being about things that I don't say, but things that I do. And so I've been in this very intense period of learning and growing and trying to figure out what, how am I going to think and what am I going to say and what am I going to do differently and how am I going to run my business differently so that we're in a place where we're moving forward racial equality. And I think that's been, for me, a very important, um, in many ways, almost spiritual disruption and, and one that I'm very grateful for. That's amazing. Uh, my final question uh, is, um, I remember you sending me an email uh, letting me know that uh, late Professor Clay Christensen was giving a lecture at the Celtics practice facility, and you asked if I would be uh, interested in, in coming. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? So, nah, so I'm busy. <laughs> I'm hanging out. <laughs> so that's, you know, when I first met you in person at the, at the yeah. facility, and of course I had the honor and the privilege of listening to Professor Clay Christian just blow my mind away as he always did. Uh, can you share a lesson you worked with him for many years? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, something that our audience can take away from oh, your relationship yeah. with him. You make me emotional. Yeah, so he, <laughs> I, I had the privilege of working with him in a volunteer capacity for several years and then co-founding a fund with him, the Disruptive Innovation Fund, and for five years. And so I got to really watch him, observe him up close for about eight years time. And I think the thing that I really learned most from him is that he was a person who brought his spiritual life into his secular um, arena. And he brought his um, secular life and his training, his academic training and that brilliantly, you know, acute mind into his spiritual life. And he really was a person who didn't compartmentalize and try to mix those two. And that's been a really um, lasting thing for me. And in terms of as I'm trying to comport myself and go about my life is to make sure that I'm mixing those two as well as to bring all of myself into the workplace and what I say and what I do, et cetera. And so that, that to me was probably the most important lesson that I learned from him. Beautiful. Beautiful. Whitney, you are our favorite guest. Yeah, and thank you for helping launch what uh, is our, our I, I'm speaking on Ray's behalf is our favorite thing to do every week is this show. And it, it's people like you that helped us, uh, on the trajectory we're on. Thank you so much. Oh, thank yeah. you. I, we are I, here. I, I Wendy Johnson. Take care. <laughs> C-suite <laughs> advisor, disruption theorist, keynote speaker, and author, and of course, Thinkers 50. Get her book, Disrupt Yourself, Build an A-Team, and more importantly, follow her on Twitter, Johnson Whitney. So follow her on Twitter, and you'll see some great stuff, and get her newsletter. Um, so you can subscribe and get that. So thanks a lot. We'll see you around. You. All and, right, uh, bye Stay bye. safe. Thank you. Just... Extraordinary, Ray. Extraordinary. Um, I can't say enough good things about uh, about uh, Whitney. 
What a privilege for us to have, I mean, a world expert on this topic. <laughs> James Taylor is our next guest. Yeah, you got to hold the book. Oh, you got, okay, it's there. There we go. James right. Taylor, CEO of Decision Management Solutions and a leading expert in digital decisioning and using advanced analytics, business rules, and AI to improve business results. Boy, more than ever do we need this capability. Every company needs to develop this muscle. James provides strategic consulting to companies in Fortune 100, top 100 companies globally working with clients in all sectors to adopt decision-making technologies. James is a faculty member of the International Institute for Analytics and is the author of Digital Decisioning, Using Decision Management to Deliver Business Impact from AI. We can see the books in his back shelf over his shoulder, and uh, as well as multiple other books, I believe five in total, and articles on decision management, decision modeling, predictive analytics, and business rules. James writes, James writes a regular blog at JT on EDM, JT on EDM.com, uh, contributes to standards and delivers webinars, workshops, and training. He's a regular keynote speaker at conferences around the world. Usually him and Ray meet at airports. You can follow him on Twitter at JamesT123. Welcome, James, to Disrupt TV. Oh, well, thank you. If I'd known you were going to read the whole bio, I'd have written a shorter one. <laughs> I, have to, I have to shorten your bio. I have to, you've done a lot, James. You've done a lot. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I'm old. You know? <laughs> no, hey, one of, the thing, one of the things that I just remember is just conversations with you. And even as far back as a decade ago, and even far back as two decades ago, you've been talking about this importance of really understanding data-driven decision-making. And given where we are today with newer technologies, given the fact that you know we've got machines that might potentially be able to quote-unquote think, uh, what's changed in these 20 years? Are, we, are humans getting better at making decisions or thinking about how they think about decisions? Are machines helping us in a different way? Uh, are there other technologies or other advancements in this thought process since the last 20 years? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, 20 years ago, this stuff was really hard, right? The technology was hard. It was expensive. It was very time consuming. Uh, we didn't have good patterns for how we approach these things. Uh, we would disagree over like the mechanics. Deploying stuff was hard. You know, all of this stuff was hard. So you can only really focus on what we do. You know, we're talking about here automating decision making if you had really high volumes and really expensive transactions. So you saw it in like loan origination or credit card fraud detection because you've got lots of transactions. And if you screw it up, you can lose hundreds of thousands of dollars instantly, right? So everyone was highly motivated to fix the problem. The last 20 years, we've got better at it. We've got better patents for it. We've got better ways of thinking about the problem so we can combine the technologies better. The technologies all got better. Frankly, our IT deployment infrastructure with like, you know, containerless and cloud and all this stuff has dramatically reduced the sort of complexity of all of that nonsense. And, and so the whole thing's become... You know, more practical. So now we're starting to see people apply it to decisions that aren't that high volume or aren't that complicated and where the downside risk is not that huge, but there's some upside potential. Um, and so I think that's, that's really changed the, the thing. And then what we've noticed the last couple of years is how much quicker we've got at building these things. And we can get these things so built the in a few months and get them deployed in a few months. And, and that used, they used to be these huge projects. And, and companies haven't quite adjusted to the fact that that's possible now. So they still, when I talk about this stuff, they still go, oh, that sounds like it's going to be really hard and take a really long time. And we're like, no, no, <laughs> but, but they don't believe us. So we're, we're still working on that bit. Yeah. So the tech's gotten cheaper, right. deployments are faster, but are the humans any better? Are the humans any smarter? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's a couple of things, right? So first of all, um, we still see a little bit of this. The older, older business leaders, 
when tech questions come up, they tend to defer, right? If it's a complex HR problem, well, they'll engage with that even though they're not HR people. If it's a complex facilities problem, they'll engage with that even though they're not facilities people. Complex technology problem comes up, they're like, oh, oh, it's tech, I can't do tech, oh. <laughs> and, and, and so that doesn't help, right? Because the best way to use this stuff is to think of it as, as, as part of how you do business, not as some you know, special magic bullet thing, right? And, and that requires business leaders to really engage with it and be part of the solution. And that's changing as you get a younger generation of business leaders who are more grown up with tech, they're more grown up with assuming things. I mean, I have a, I have a 30-year-old son, I have a granddaughter, and, and I remember when he was a, a high school student talking to him about underwriting as a job, insurance underwriting. And he looked at me as though I was crazy. He said, that's not a job. People don't do that. Computers do that. But I'm like, no, really, people still do this job. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so as people like him and it become the managers in the workforce and the leaders in the workforce, their assumption is, why are we doing this by hand? Why, you know, why can't we automate this? Why, why can't we do this this way? Why, why does it have to be you know, so difficult? And so I think that's, that, that is, in that sense, people are getting, they're getting less terrified of the technology um, and more willing to engage, even though they don't necessarily understand the bits and bytes they're willing to engage in a serious conversation about what the trade-offs and the ROI and the, and the sure. process of developing it looks like. Yeah, before I, I, I joined Salesforce, I, I led a, a services organization and a marketing organization. Um, and the 10 plus years in services, uh, for me, a lesson was that speed to value matters most in terms of demonstrating relevance. As quickly you can solve uh, in, uh, uh, an issue, and, and sometimes solving, you know, fixing the customer before you fix the issue, because some <laughs> complex issues would take some time. So, so co-creating co value at the speed of need became a, really a, a guiding principle. And and so my team and I would look for areas of friction. We would look for blockages in our business, so we can find opportunities for optimizing workflow and and really delivering insights to the stakeholders in a timely manner so that you could, you could again, uh, uh, you know, create value at the speed of need, your stakeholder need, your customer need, right. your partner's needs. So, so it was a shift from you know, silo mentalities to design thinking principles based on flow optimization. When you're guiding customers and advising them, how quickly can you sense when there's friction and blockage and unnecessary you know, uh, right. procedures and processes that, that weighs them down in terms of being agile and mobile and adaptive and getting to those decisions as quickly as they can. So really there's two things we find that work really well, right? The, the first is we have a sort of basic rule of thumb, which is if you have a lot of transactions and it's not immediately apparent what you should do with them, then you have a decisioning problem. If, you, if it's obvious what to do, well, that's easy. You can automate that with almost anything, right? If it's not obvious what to do, but you don't have very many of them, you're probably not going to invest in automating and, and, and digitizing this stuff. So it's that intersection that matters. Um, and that helps them find a lot. Often they're like, oh, well, there's this one transaction we have a lot, and you know, it, it's a big driver of cost in the system. Um, that's typically fairly easy. Um, often we'll get people to say, well, what are your key business metrics? What are the things you need to improve? Because what we're trying to do is, is demonstrate that, that there are always decisions that are preventing them from getting to a higher value in that metric or more more results better results and they just don't know what they are so getting them to articulate that um you know so what choices do you make that make a difference to the metric if it's a good metric if it's a good project objective somebody must be able to do something hmm. to move towards it but what are those things who are those people how many of them are there 
you know, there's three people who make a difference to this metric. Well, it's not a good candidate. If everyone in the call center has to behave a certain way for the metric to be a good result, well, that's a good candidate because now you've got lots of people that have to make decisions. One exception we find is that there is an opportunity with this tech that people miss a lot, which is what we call um, micro decisions. So today, we treat everyone the same. We send you the same T's and C's. We send you the same though. You log into our homepage, we show you the same homepage. Okay, well, what if there was only one customer you were sending the T's and C's to? <laughs> Would you send them the standard T's and C's? Well, no, we'd send them the T's and C's that were relevant to them. There was only one person coming to your website. Would you, if it was just Ray, Ray was your only customer. Would your website look the same as it does now? And I bought this book. And I bought yeah. this book. Yeah, well, no, it wouldn't, right? It would look different, right? Because Ray's got certain interests and he lives in a certain place and so on. Well, so there's often an opportunity to essentially add a decision to stop treating everyone with a cookie cutter and apply these technologies to say, well, what if I could generate a checklist that was unique to your truck that you were taking out this morning to tell you whether it was ready to go or not? What if I could generate a check, uh, you know, a maintenance schedule for this yard today that was driven partly by the warranty, partly by the regular schedule, partly by the task we've got going today, and partly by predictions of maintenance failures that are upcoming. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't do that today. That's not a decision I make today. So those are the trickier ones, but they often offer the real sort of disruptive potential, right? Because people go, oh, we could do that differently. Yeah, and, and that's often really... Um, so the, yeah, so, the business, the so the business impact, ultimately, when you have optimal decision-making management uh, framework in place is mass personalization at scale? Yeah, that's, that's certainly one of the largest ones, right? That's, uh, you, know, um, you see a lot of like, how do I make apply data more effectively? How do I sort of be more compliant and so on? How do I respond more quickly? But that one, that mass customization is, is perhaps one of the, the yeah. biggest ones. The only challenge with using the phrasing is that people think, therefore, you must be talking about B2C. And that you must be talking about like marketing, right? Yeah. Is this Amazon or Netflix or Spotify yeah. recommending things that are absolutely things that you relate to? So you're right. You're right. There's a sense of a B2C element to it. Yeah. But, so yeah. it's true though. And, and if you can get people to realize that they, they could just as easily have mass customization of, uh, the, the morning checklist for their for their maintenance crew or uh, mass yes. customization of the script this call center rep uses to help you pay your you know, whatever then then sure it's a great phrase I, I, the only reason I don't use it is because it does tend to take people off down the Netflix Spotify mm-hmm. route which is like not always what I mean <laughs> yeah no no and and the other thing is people typically think that anything that's on that end is, is about a financial transaction when a lot right. of these decisions are non-financial. So there's monetary decisions, there's non-monetary decisions, which are actions people take. I referred right. something, I passed something, I proved right. something. And there's also consensus where you actually met some set of criteria. So we scheduled a meeting or we signed a contract right. or we approved on a PO, which is interesting. Um, and and what, what amazes me is that you're right. The technology has gotten better, which means at this point we can actually automate some of these decisions, right? right? And and this is where the AI and the automation is coming in, please. And principle number four, if I remember, was like test, was it test, learn, and improve continuously or yeah. continuously improve, yeah, something like right, that? Right. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of like the stuff that we're not good at as humans. We suck at that. Oh, we're terrible And that's at where that, yeah. some of this automation is <laughs> actually popping up. Like, right. what, what do you suggest to people as we're getting there? Because a lot of this, you know, a lot of it was, uh, first it was out process, then it was about how we make better decisions with analytics. Right. And now we're moving up the chain to say, how do we automate these things? Like, yeah, what, what's some of the advice that's people to do this? Because a lot of people are automating a lot of crap. 
Well, that's true, right? And, and one of the things we always say to people is like, look, you know, and, and it, it's, it's, um, it's one of the challenges of machine learning and AI, right? Uh, you know, they tend to be very disruptive um, to the way you do business today. And most, you know, our typical customer is, and I say this lovingly, a big, boring company, right? And, and big, boring companies can't just go, oh, the analytics says I should stop doing X and start doing Y. I'm going to therefore do that. Right? Because they've got customers and they've got contracts and they've got commitments and all these things, right? So what we always say to people is, look, take advantage of the fact that this technology is good at this test and learn thing. Let's start just by taking where you are right now and getting control of it. I start generating some data about how you make decisions, make sure you make them consistently, automate them. That's the sort of basic blocking and tackling. And then let's start saying, well, what kinds of analytics would improve that decision? Um, what additional data might help you make a better decision? And because we've now automated, well, now we can run simulations. We did this for a client. They had this piece of data. Everyone knew it would improve the decision-making, but capturing it was kind of expensive. And they were like, they were just arguing, I think we should capture it. I don't think we should capture it. It's too expensive. It's not that expensive. And we're like, wait, wait, wait. Let's just run the rules that we've written against the data set without the data and then do it again with the data. And we'll see how many, you know, what the percentage improvement rate was. And then you can run the numbers. And, and they ran the numbers and went, oh, well, we should totally capture that data. <laughs> Although it seems expensive <laughs> to capture it, it eliminates a ton of waste, right? So you can stop these sort of back and forth arguments. But to do it, um, you really have to have control of the transaction level decision, right? One of my sort of pet peeves is people who will, they'll try and do simulations or testing or they'll, they'll aggregate a bunch of data. Then they'll try and simulate it. If you talk to anyone who does simulation, they'll say, no, 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 no. You have to aggregate the simulations, not simulate the aggregate. Because right, right. Right? as soon as you aggregate, it's all averaged out and blur, right? Well, then the simulation is not interesting. If I simulate a process, assuming that everyone goes through the same route through the process, well, that's not helpful, right? Um, so, you know, we often say, look, get control of the transaction level decision. Don't try and improve it necessarily. Don't try and get it smarter. Just do the basic, what you think you do today or what you ought to do today and automate that. And now we can start to improve it. Now we can start to get smarter about it. We can start to look for analytics, new data, start seeing other bits of this we could use machine learning on, you know, yeah, and that that sort of mindset take advantage of the fact that this stuff's easy to change, easy to evolve, uh, not easy but straightforward to generate rich data out of. Yeah, and as Ray said, start start experimenting. Yeah. When I when I when I think of Alibaba last year selling almost thirty nine billion dollars in one day, and how much they've invested <laughs> in smart robotics in their warehouses, when I think of Amazon in two thousand twelve having zero robots, and now they have about two hundred fifty thousand robots in their warehouses. Of course, they have a million people, but, but you know, going from zero to 250,000 robots. When I see the Starship uh, uh, event in the last couple of months where I see the astronauts comfortably sitting back with touch screen, yeah. and it feels like, like I'm Netflix binging in my living room, and, and their experience just seems so smooth. So the, there's an element of, and Tesla as the vehicle itself, it seems like this, this cognitive download from the person to the machine around us in multiple industries. Do you think that's going to accelerate the decision management solution framework? Because the future of work is going to be more and more cognitive download from the person to a machine and those, you know, uh, deterministic processes and, uh, you know, mundane tasks are going to be fully automated so you can be more creative, more insightful, and really closer to your maybe stakeholders, customers, partners. Uh, yeah, 
I think so, but I think we have to we have to sort of rethink how we're talking about machine learning and AI, right? Where we we do what you just did often, right? We we use these stories of these very large, very um, specific kinds of projects, yeah. right? And the the problem is that the way most of those projects are approached is they're really trying to say, can we do this with AI machine learning? So it's all very um, led by the machine learning and AI. But for a business, most of what people do is their day-to-day -day blocking and tackling. And their problem is, you know, and, and I'm, as it was very well known, so a real cynic about machine learning and AI because, <laughs> oh, you yeah. know, to be oh, honest, yeah. <laughs> everyone looks for insight. They want to get insight. And there's all these stories about machine learning and AI case, case studies. <laughs> when this is rolled out, when fully deployed, when everyone's using it, they'll have these great benefits. And I'm like, I, I have a definition of a successful project. Show me a business metric that you were tracking up to a certain point at which you deployed the new machine learning or AI model. And now you have a better score on that metric after whatever the lag is and your competitors don't. And if you can't show me that, then yeah. it's not deployed. And yeah. the answer at that point is when you say that to people, it's crickets. No, 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 really, no, no, no chatbot use cases and customer service support. Uh, yeah. in, in terms of chatbot, chat, right? Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. yeah, but but when you come to like, generally speaking, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're like, you have to change the way you think about this stuff, right? There's there's two big issues right now. One is everyone thinks you should start with the data, right? And all the McKinsey and all the research and everything else is that's absolutely not going to work. You have to start by saying, what is it I'm trying to get better at? You have to begin with the end in mind or the decision in mind, as I like to say. Decision in mind, principle number one. Backwards. Principle yeah, number exactly. one. You have to begin with the decision in mind and say, this is the decision we have to be better at. What does better mean? How would we tell we were better at it? Mm -hmm. Okay, what analytics would help us get better at it? Now, can we build those analytics? Um, and you have to sort of work that backwards. And so that requires a real mind shift in the way people think about these things. The other thing we've got to stop doing is we've got to stop thinking that the way humans and machines are going to collaborate is by the machine making a suggestion and you deciding if you're going to accept it or not. Because the minute you do that, you've basically surrendered the whole process because you now have no idea why decisions were taken because you don't know why they overrode it. And you've essentially abdicated responsibility for saying, what is it that you want the person to do? But, but when you hear when you hear Dr. Kai Fu Lee, uh, who talks about AI revolution, and he says that the d dumbification of uh, AI algorithms so that they could be described, uh, that you could understand how they arrived to the recommendation or prediction, these algorithms are making decisions on three, four thousand data points, and so for you to reduce that logic so we can understand means you're actually not uh, taking advantage of the full power of. Uh, uh, machine learning or neural networks. What, what yeah. are you talking about? I think that's just wrong. So, um, I, you know, our experience is that if you talk to people who make a business decision, uh, they can tell you how it's made. And when you do that, you discover that you don't need one AI algorithm. You need dozens. Hmm. Take one of my favorite, you know, one we do, we do a lot of, we do a lot of claims processing recently for some reason, don't ask me why. Um, <laughs> and in claims, for instance, <laughs> we've had any number of clients who tried to build one great big machine learning model to say, pay this claim, don't pay that claim. Right. Underwrite this person, don't underwrite that person. They're Doesn't all rubbish. They're all crap, right? Because <laughs> take a concrete example. The value of a claim, the higher the value is, the more likely it is to be wasteful, but the less likely it is to be fraudulent. Mm. Because fraudsters don't submit big claims, mm. they submit lots of little claims, right? So, no. so how does it's the value of the claim affect your algorithm? Does it drive it up? or down. Well, it kind of does a bit of both and it's got this oddball logic in it and it's got this shit going on, right? 
My we AI bought shaving into... pennies to the dollar. Yeah, right. So we, we, we <laughs> break the problem down into pieces and then find often dozens of pieces that can be predicted with machine learning. That's great. Each wow. one is much more focused. Each one's much easier to build. And it doesn't need to be as explainable. Either it doesn't, either it's easier to explain because there's several pieces, sure. or it doesn't need to be explained because the only thing you're going to do with it is refer it to someone afterwards, right? So you say, makes sense. given I'm only referring it, I don't really need to know how it works. If I'm going to pay <laughs> no. or not pay based on it, well, then I need to know how it works. Then I do need to know how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the other thing so. we do is when, when someone says, well, I want to refer it to someone, we'll say, well, why? What is the person going to do? You know, what, what is their role in this decision? Right. What is it you want them to decide? Well, they have to be able to override the decision on like commercial insurance because we need to know if the building's safe and you can only do that by looking at the building. Ah, okay, so you have to decide if the building's safe or not. And that decision is currently made by a person and feeds into our decision as to how we're gonna underwrite this, right? Because you want the, the decision-making decision of the person to be fed into the rest of the, as a peer with everything else. I've got policy-based stuff. I've got, yeah, exactly. exactly. Because then, then I know what happened, right? Why, why this worked, right? You know, so and, and so I that's Jay Farrow from QuickRead. He said, did someone say concrete? Holger Mueller says, hello. He said he worked with you at FICO <laughs> yeah, uh, some yeah, time remember, back. Yeah, a long time so, ago, yeah. yeah. So we are here with James Taylor, the CEO of Decision Management Solutions. You can follow him on Twitter at J-A-M-E-T-1-2-3. And definitely get this book. It's an awesome Bible about what's happening in this <laughs> autonomous enterprise that we're going to see in the future. But more importantly, get your decisions down right manually first before you open yeah. that. Yeah, can yeah. of worms on automation. Thanks a lot, James, for being on the show. Hey, it was great to have you. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, Thank you, James. You're terrific. Thank you. Uh, clearly an expert, deep knowledge. Speaking of expert and knowledge, and I'm going to go quickly through the bios because in the interest of time, we have the godfather of CRM. Uh, he's the best-selling author of the most popular book ever written about CRM, uh, CRM at the Speed of Light, Paul Greenberg, who's the CEO founder of the 56 Group. Uh, you can follow Paul on Twitter at pgreenb, P-G-R-E-E-N-B-E. -E and he is the co-host of an incredible podcast, uh, CRM Players, which Ray and I were on yesterday. We'll talk about that some more. And with him, we have uh, Brent Leary. Brent Leary was named by CRM Magazine as the most influential leader in this space. He's the uh, other co-host of CRM Players, and uh, it's uh, a pleasure to have Brent with us. You can follow Brent Leary on Twitter at Brent Leary, B-R-E-N-T-L-E-A-R-Y. Welcome, Paul and Brent, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> so where were we actually? I'm trying to remember where we left off yesterday. Yeah, that's right. That's, oh, it's a crossover. No. Oh, it's a crossover. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but I, I, can did... tell you, I can tell you at one point, uh, uh, Brent asked me my favorite sport. <laughs> and uh, I just want to let you know the reason basketball is my favorite sport oh, is because at 16, oh, 16 <laughs> with that leather skelly cap on my head. Was that number 33? <laughs> I met Larry Bird and, uh, you know, growing up in Boston <laughs> and then getting to meet him. And that's before I had a chin strap. Uh, this, oh. is why, this is why basketball is my favorite sport. So, Vala, did you was just make me... Was he number 33, if I remember? That's he was right. definitely 33. That was and you just, you just made it so hard for me to say how much I hate Boston because I like that story. Yeah. And I also like... Uh, I also kind of like Bill Russell. So there you go. I got two folks I, I do like. 
He has more rings than he could wear on two hands. So to me, anybody who's got uh, oh. 11 championships is, uh, is, a, is, is someone people should aspire to. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do have a question for you guys. I mean, you guys have been doing this is what your 201st show yeah. now or something like that. I mean, this is great. You got great guests. I mean, me and Paul, like, you know, going back and forth on our little direct messaging saying, how are we going to follow these guys? But so we're going to we're going to try. <laughs> but one question we, we have, because we got this from our buddy, Alan Berkson over at Freshworks. So we wanted to he asked us this and we want to ask you this. Do you guys have a corporate narrative for your show? <laughs> oh my god narratives everyone's talking about narratives uh, i'd say the narrative for the show is basically look what's hot for the enterprise our job is to make enterprise tech sexy right so bringing these issues around that that's the narrative right? How, i mean because enterprise tech's usually like oh it's the enterprise it's not consumer there's no kind of flash but we're putting the people and we're showcasing the people that make enterprise tech happen the leaders the business thinkers right the practitioners right the vendors that are out there i mean we just want to make enterprise tech sexy so oh, really? maybe that's my narrative i don't know about <laughs> without, without without exception everyone that comes on the show is smarter than i am so for me i just get to be smarter a, than me too no, 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 I'm, I'm a student for an hour uh and uh and uh, the reason i write the reason why i this is the favorite time of the week for me is I get to learn, and and I do think staying teachable is like really important. Things are moving fast, velocity, speed, and direction of technology industries, different players. I mean, we, last year we wouldn't have talked about TikTok. We talked thirty minutes about TikTok yesterday. <laughs> so just Zoom. We had the founder of we had the founder of Zoom on our show on Disrupt TV, and the reason he was on the show is he was thanking Red Eye for using Zoom as a platform. Fast forward two years later, the guys worth ten billion. <laughs> Okay, so wait, 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 wait. We got crossover guests that are reminding us what we were talking about on our last show 24 hours ago. Look at that. Uh, Ed is still Force commenting. Buying TikTok. Ed's still commenting. <laughs> Lemons and Vala's bowl. Uh, a V2 mom is our corporate narrative, Vala, I think. So I guess, I guess we're okay. My summation of your corporate narratives, not really. You don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, when 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 Alan asked us what's your what corporate, our corporate we, well, when Alan asked us that, we were like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Alan was saying we we were doing something that might hurt our corporate narrative, and both of us went hysterical laughing. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, I do have a question. You know, I spent this week talking to the senior most exec, the, the most senior executives at the Patriots, Red Sox, uh, 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 Celtics, uh, Revolution, and Cannons, uh, five of the six pro teams in Boston, and uh, we were trying to we were trying to ext <laughs> uh, extract their vision of what the fan experience will look like uh, maybe a year from now with the combination of technologies like contactless payments and e-commerce, social distancing, and so on and so forth. What are your thoughts? I mean, you two are deeply involved in advising the biggest and most successful pro teams in across multiple uh, leagues. What does a Yankee game look like? Or, or, or uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I can't believe I'm bringing up this. We don't want to ask. <laughs> 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 right? So the last thing you want to do is ask a Yankee fan what it looks like 
Day after a loss. I know. I, wait, listen, your record is two times better than the Sox, so you know you're you're in good place. You're in good no, look, I mean the fan. Look, obviously fan experience is a big deal, but it's not the the, the fact that at this point no one's going to be in stadiums most likely, no matter what the NFL seems to be thinking. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> they they're going to be going virtual, and and the way they have to do that is they have to escalate the fan engagement itself it's not just right if you look at historic fan engagement it's been like um mobile devices throwing optimized offers at you at the stadium because they understand some of your likes and dislikes they have location sensors uh, embedded during it throughout the stadium so they know where you are you're walking by this you're doing that right they have um some social interaction with uh you know on various social media channels etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's it tends to be focused around uh, transaction, really, ultimately, and brought. And when it's not, it tends to be almost outside the game experience itself. Mm -hmm. It tends to just be fans and conversations with each other, with each other. Now, unfortunately, that's not how it can work anymore. Because first of all, you're not walking by any location at a stadium. Secondly, um, the reality is, the chances are you're going to be doing what the NFL is feared the most anyway, which is watching a game from home, which is their biggest competitor when it comes to revenue and at, at games. And consequently, you have to figure out, okay, well, given that the fans are at home, how do you engage them, right? Um, you know, we had Jonathan Becker, who a lot of you guys, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still, you're stealing my story right now. Right. That's what I'll do. Right, then I'll skip that and I'll go to the next level. Last <laughs> night, which we're going to be talking about late in about uh, – eight minutes or 10 minutes or so. Uh, last night, Charles Barkley was raked over to Coles because he didn't understand whether you could see the virtual player, the virtual fans at the actual, at the game, whether you act, the players could see the fans. But if you look at it, that's actually a really interesting telling point because if you, yeah, look yeah. At, you actually look at that, that really tells you how fan engagement and fan experience had been looked at. So, for example, back in the day, if you were watching an Oakland A's game on national television and you'd get a baseball game and you'd watch, see the behind home plate view, you would see a NetSuite ad. It would be right up there. But the fans weren't seeing any NetSuite ads. It was all digital, right? And all of those ads are digital, which is why Barclays question was Barclays question, right? <laughs> now, I guess this is in conjunction with Microsoft Teams, they managed to actually produce virtual fans who are real people who are actually communicating and kind of watching the game in these sort of, but these are screens literally there. So the players can see them and the, um, and the, you can see them on TV, yeah. right? Or however you're watching. So that, what that, that, level is kind of where the thing is going yeah but barclay's legitimate question is where it's been right yeah. and and that's why the, it's a bit of a transition and most of the teams have not figured out how to handle that yet yeah I enjoy some great questions NBA here. yeah Go ahead. yeah some great questions here's one from uh, jeff freck you know when does the nba start putting cameras all over the place don't have to worry about blocking the line and the uh, site and then he's well like, they actually have done that espn is actually they have one uh, channel for like the regular kind of broadcast where yeah. you have the commentators and the announcers talking and you have to, like the traditional view. Then they have a separate feed that is, is just cameras at like these different angles, yeah. no announcers whatsoever. It's just the experience. It's just you watching the game from a kind of a different angle than you, you uh, traditionally, you could go back and forth, but I just want to say one thing, uh, cutouts, 
you know, the cutout people. I'm not a big fan of the cutout people. No. Although, <laughs> although a buddy of mine showed me a, a picture because some people are, are starting to have real fun with the cutouts. There was one game. I forget what the game it was, but they had a cutout. You remember the, that movie? Uh, uh, that Bernie's not weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody made a cutout of Bernie sitting at the game. I said, "All right, now that's funny." Now, what the uh, what the the Sharks did, what you're talking about with Jonathan Becker, the fan experiences now. It seems like a lot of these folks they don't just want to watch it; they want to be a part of it. So they're like integrating esports, and I think they started a yeah. Twitch channel uh, so that. Not only are you watching the game, you're actually a part of it to the point where, you know, you they put you in the game and they have like the actual San Jose Sharks announcer announcing you as in the game when you like score or do something. Yeah, and eventually they're, wow. they're going to be working their way up to doing like full immersion of you. So I think it's really brilliant that these companies are taking this time like, you know, this this pandemic thing sports is this this whole thing is going to be an asterisk. You know, MLB is only paying 60 games. You know, the, the, yeah, right. the NBA kind of got their you know, season cut in the two. So I like how some of these leagues are doing things differently. Now, some of the stuff they're doing is kind of whack. Like, you know, the extra innings you started doing at second base. Hey, what the hell is that? Brett, would you subscribe to the NBA if the referees wore uh, an Apple glass and – you could be on the court with the players and you could see the stats of the players from a viewpoint of a, re a referee. Would you pay for an experience where like Facebook's Oculus vision of like courtside experience, but now you're running up and down and you're literally standing two inches behind LeBron while he's taking his free throw shots. Yeah, absolutely not. Now right. what experience I would pay for is if you could go back to history games, like for example, Super Bowl 36, and I could go into the game when the Rams are playing the Patriots, and I can affect the outcome of the actual You're really stealing my number, man. That's my literal problem. Give, give the ball to Beast Mode and let him run. Why are you casting? No, we, we are treading into dangerous territory. We don't talk religion, <laughs> politics, or sports. Uh, anyways. <laughs> I was just kidding. No, this is awesome. Um, yeah, we got some interesting comments here, right? Think, I mean, Frick's right here. Look at this, right? Think about yeah. what happens to you know NCAA D2. I mean, this is going to be a big challenge, right? I mean, well, a what, lot of the money in sports is really being... I mean, and Liz made a great point here, right? I mean, Liz being in the, in the business before, I mean, talking about fan experience, right? It's it's how do you get this fan experience to, to, to continue, right? It's it's going from, you know, game experience to fan experience. Keep in mind, it's not all monetized experience, right? I mean, that's the right. thing you got to understand about a fan experience. Fans will pay. That's not that's not really the big issue. They'll pay for something. I mean, Brent's a living proof of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'll just do my little rant just real quick. Yeah, Sometimes, ahead. like the Rams, I won't, I won't just out them. Some of these teams <laughs> that people are fans of that don't live anywhere near the vicinity of the team, sure. the fan, I mean, the team doesn't really recognize them as a fan unless they're a season ticket holder or they have something like there's a, a transaction involved that's directly between the team and the fan. Yeah, I there's no way in the world I'm going to be a season ticket holder for the Rams. I live like three thousand miles away, right. but right. I challenge anybody that says that I I don't spend a lot of money on Rams merchandise. 
that probably makes up more than what a season ticket would be. Absolutely. But so. the team doesn't recognize that. And so I, there's, I, a, there's a strained relationship there. I spoke to a CMO of a pro team and they said, talk about use of little data, not big data. Just your zip code changes how they market to you. If you're within 30 miles of the stadium, you're going to get marketed to potential season ticket holder. If you're outside 30, it's totally different messaging, totally different outreach. Okay. So entire what does a virtual system. season ticket holder look like oh, today? What would that mean? Yeah, you're getting to no, you're getting to a really important point on the business model itself, which is historically the business model itself has always been the season's ticket holder is the fault right. of everything, no matter yeah. how you look at it. That model is dead at this point, right? It is, right. It's not it's not a viable business model yet. The thinking hasn't changed dramatically yet. You have, you have visionaries like Jonathan who are fantastic and a great boon to all sports, much less just hockey. But uh, you have guys like him who get that and they understand and are trying to shift the model. But even there, you know, you're up against the NHL owners in general, you're up against the NBA owners or whoever, whatever league you're up against, but you're up against owners who have traditionally said, no, look, we have to do everything we can to retain season's ticket holders. And within that context, you know, as it's kind of inheritance right version, right? As one goes, we fill it with another. But so we we do some minimal work to start recruiting people to the new wave as the other older ones die. But our basic idea is retention of a season ticket holder. Miles gone. Fan engagement, and that's why, but that's also why fan engagement and fan experience can't be monetized at every point either. Not every because time. the way that you have to deal with it is by providing uh, the kind of interactions and experience that just, in effect, motivate the fans to buy stuff. And by the standard, the new standard, which also goes to a guy on the Atlanta uh, Atlanta Falcons, who's literally the, the most socially influential fan who's never been to a game live, ever, <laughs> right? Um, the people who are buying the merchandise, the people who are promoting the team, those become who you begin to focus on. You're not focusing on just a season's ticket holder. Rams, hear me out. Hear me. <laughs> That's why he's the godfather of CRM. That's why he's the godfather. Use the godfather card. <laughs> well, um, so much for enterprise tech in our uh, narrative. <laughs> No, 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 no. It was all about enterprise tech. It was all behind the scenes. Yeah, this is awesome. We're literally going to continue this conversation again if you guys want to. <laughs> We're doing our sports. Anytime. Oh, my God. Anytime. We are here with Brent Leary, co-founder and partner CRM Essentials. You can follow him at Brent Leary on Twitter and Paul Greenberg, the godfather of CRM, board advisors on Constellation Research, and president the 56 group so thanks a lot folks you can follow paul at p green b g r e e m b e <laughs> my my just rubbing everyone's face <laughs> thank you for helping us complete the crossover show this is awesome so really really appreciate it so, we gotta go back we're there we're there anytime, anytime. we got you your logo we got your logo we're in so. I know. I like that. <laughs> it's a good logo. I love it. All right. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show. We're going to wrap up and talk about what is on episode number 202. We're going to put you out into the green room, and we'll see you there. So, oh, there we go. What that hour was, I tell you, I'm talking to Paul and Brent. It's like, we just don't have enough time. Um, anyway, uh, episode 202. So where do, thinkers, <laughs> where do thinkers 50 people go? To share their knowledge, disrupting me. Next week, uh, we have Alex Osterwalder, who's a Thinkers 50, I believe, ranked number four in the world, co-founder of Strategizer, 
his books are beautiful. I have it there right behind Whitney's book. It was yeah, also the cover's amazing. The it's like a coffee tactile. table design. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's tactile. It's tactile. Beautiful. Hopefully, he'll draw for us. I'm going to ask if he could draw live for us because his, the, he, he brings a concepts to life through his, his drawings. We have Paul Shear, research fellow at the Mosvar Rahmani Center for Business and Government at Harvard Kennedy School, another big brain guest. Ex-vice chairman of SMP, used to see him at Davos all the time, talking about financial and economic models. So it's a great time to ask him, hey, what's next? Uh, this is, he's, a, he's definitely a big brain. And speaking of big brain, we're ending the show with our favorite uh, you know, co-host when one of us is out, Liz Miller, vice president, principal analyst at Constellation Research. I know Guy Kawasaki and Liz are now like best friends, BFFs. So she's coming back on our show as a guest this time. Not a, not a host, but uh, looking forward to having Liz. She's always just uh, amazing insights. Ray, closing remarks on episode 201, 616 interviews. <laughs> Look, it's been amazing. We're looking forward to the next year. It's going to be a lot of exciting guests. We are booked all the way out to mid-September, uh, a little bit into almost late September. So if you think of a great guest, let us know. We definitely want to feature them. We are featuring the BT-150. And of course, you're going to see the Constellation Connected Enterprise event, October 27, 28, maybe 29, depending if it's physical or virtual. And that's all coming up soon. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Catch us 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you, everyone.